Good morning, everyone. So delighted to be learning this with you this morning. Uh, I would love to invite folks who are on the call to show your faces so that I can see you so that we can see one another. Um, I always love seeing people's faces. If we can't do face to face, at least we can do face to face through a screen. Um, I want to start by just thanking, uh, first I want to thank uh, Caitlin Bellina, who is our Zoom master this morning. So Caitlin, thank you for, for making this possible. I also wanted to thank um, Andrew Hanlon, who is just uh, the best tech whiz. And I gave him uh, you know, the 50-minute the podcast, a 45-minute podcast, and he so effortlessly was able to excerpt the five sections we're going to look at uh, today. So uh, Andrew, thank you for that. I want to thank all of you for joining us on this conversation. So I'm so excited and we'll just get going with it. What we're talking about today is where um, Israel is as a Jewish state, Israel and Israelis, and how that intersects with Jewish values. And I think that this is about as urgent a conversation as all of us who love Israel so deeply could have. So here's the framework. Um, you know all this, that for all of our lives, for all of our lives, the magic language has always been two-state solution. We're going to have a two-state solution uh, of, of Israel and Palestinian state that are living side by side in security and in peace. And in that way, Israel could be both Jewish and democratic. And a few years ago, Michael Goodman wrote his book, Catch 67 which is such an important book. And he's talked here at Temple Emanuel many times about it. And his basic point, as you all know, if you've read the book or heard his, his lectures, is that the two-state solution is not happening. It's just not happening in any of our lifetimes. It doesn't work for Israelis. And he makes the case why it doesn't work for Israelis. It doesn't work for Palestinians. He makes the case why it doesn't work for Palestinians. So there's not a two-state solution. And in the meantime, what there has been is just a status quo, which is very challenging. And one of the ways that Israel would manage the status quo is, and this is a metaphor that you've all heard about, is mowing the lawn. That is to say, it's not good, but every once in a while we have to go to war. It's not good, but every once in a while we have to exert force. It's not good, but every once in a while we need to use our power to create peace and quiet. We have to mow the lawn. So in his book, Catch 67, Michael Goodman looks at the two-state solution, which is lovely, but not happening. And he looks at the actual status quo, which is in the absence of a two-state solution, we mow the lawn. That is happening, but is not lovely. And then he comes up with this third approach, as you all know, called shrinking the conflict. That is to say, we're not going to solve it. There's not going to be a peace treaty. There's not going to be a handshake on the White House lawn like there was in 1993, but we can make lives materially better for Palestinians uh, in ways that will not harm Israel or Israelis. And if we can, we should. And if we can, we could give Palestinians, if not their own state, we could give them 80% uh, sovereignty. And that was an idea in a book uh, for a while. And then with the recent change in government, with the current administration in Israel, post Prime Minister Netanyahu, the time for Micha's idea has come. 
and now shrink the conflict is the policy of the Israeli government. Now, here is the issue that, and we've got five clips that are gonna look at this from different angles. Daniel Hartman is hot and bothered. He's hot and bothered. And here's why he's hot and bothered. He's hot and bothered because the status quo, even if we shrink the conflict, still leaves Israel and Israelis occupying another people. Let me drop a footnote here. I know for many people on this call, the word occupy or occupying is triggering. You hate that word. It feels anti-Semitic. It feels anti-Israel. You hate the word, you resist the word. If you say occupy or occupying, then we don't share a universe. So that's a whole long separate conversation. Let me just say it's assumed in this whole conversation that this is an occupation. Let me also say that Hartman has this guy named Tal Becker, who is just, you know, a genius at international law. He's on Israel's negotiating team. And he's done a, a whole lecture, which many of us have heard in Jerusalem about occupation. And the answer is when you look at the statutes and when you look at the regs and when you look at international law and when you look at the facts on the ground, this is an occupation. So Hartman's uh, proceeds on the assumption of it. I've gotten uh, you know some email from people saying occupation, I don't like the word. I'm gonna try to find that lecture that Tal Becker did about the occupation as and why it is an occupation from the Hartman's point of view. Um, but just know that that's gonna be the, the presumption in this lecture. And Daniel Hartman is upset because if we are occupying another people, that's a moral issue. And he'll, he'll, he'll put it this way, if you've heard the lecture or the podcast, we're dying morally. Israel, the Jewish state is dying morally because it is occupying another people. That's gonna be Daniel's um, um, premise. And here's what's most painful, which is most Israelis don't care about this issue. Your college kids care about this issue in North America. Many of us on this call, North Americans, care about this issue. But Daniel and Yossi Klein Halevi, his thought partner, are both gonna proceed on the assumption that Israelis are not losing sleep on this issue. And they're not bothered morally on this issue because we tried to make peace. We tried to give away their, you know, we tried to trade land for peace. You all know the history. You all know Oslo. You all know Ehud Barak, President Clinton, Yasser Arafat. We'll give you 96%. We'll split sovereignty of Jerusalem. And what we got was the second intifada. So this is Daniel and Yossi will, will, that's their background. And therefore we didn't, what we got was second to five. Therefore there's no peace to be had. And therefore um, there's not a moral problem. We're entitled to self-preservation. Daniel Hartman is, is lo he's losing sleep about the fact that he's not losing sleep. And he's losing sleep about the fact that Israelis are not losing sleep. And he thinks that Israel is dying morally. And his big concern is uh, that the shrink the conflict language is not going to ameliorate the moral problem of the occupation. And you're going to hear Yossi Klein Halevi, who's going to say, Daniel, you are not speaking to Israelis. You're speaking to Americans, but you're actually an Israeli. And, Amer and Israelis don't get what you're saying. And what you're saying does not comport with the live lives of Israelis. So, that's, so what we're going to do is hear five clips about that. After each clip, I would love your voices. This is supposed to be a conversation. I just wanted to set this up for you. 
Um, we have five different clips um, and we'll take conversation on each of them. And then at the end, um, I wanna share with you two texts that uh, Alana Steinhain shared in that podcast that are really a perfect um, lens to look at the dialogue between Danielle and Yossi Klein Halevi. So um, with that, I'm going to ask Caitlin to please play the first clip. He wants to unfreeze the status quo and he knows that if you go to a moral language, we're gonna get stuck. I wanna, I, wanna, I, wanna, I wanna tell you what it means for me because I appreciate very much the practical, but for me, shrinking the conflict, there's a political status quo and there's a moral status quo. I feel what's most cancerous today is not the political status quo, but the moral status quo. I accept that the political status quo is politically untenable, but there is a moral status quo that we've gotten into. You said yourself, most Israelis, they could tolerate it. But what are we tolerating? We are tolerating core violation of the human rights of other people. Now, I share the narrative that we're trying in Palestine. I'm not talking about who's to blame. That's a separate conversation, who's to blame. There is a current status quo that I experience as a cancer, Yossi. We're dying, not physically, we're dying morally. And the fact that most Israelis could tolerate it and aren't losing sleep at night, there's something, something bad has happened to me, Yossi. I sleep too well. And for me, shrinking the conflict is not about principally practical solutions. Even though I respect the need for it, what I'm hungering for is a shrinking of the conflict where we shrink away from the moral price of the conflict. That when you are dramatically occupying, if we will do some of the practical things that you and Micha are talking about, it's not gonna be perfect. But the moral consequence of occupying them, the moral blindness that we've embraced, that for me, I, I can't get off of that right now. I like that formulation very much. Okay. So what I'd love to do is, so that's the first, our first ambit is Danielle's concern that shrinking, that shrinking the conflict um, is going to allow us to continue to die morally because we're not going to deal with the moral issue. And what I'd love to do is to ask, we got a lot of people on the call. I think Kanina Hara, we have like over 80 people on the call. So what I'd love to do is to invite people who want to just react to this first piece of dialogue, first piece of conversation. If you have comments, questions, thoughts, put it in the chat. And I'll ask Caitlin to just let me know the first five people who do. And we'll take the first five comments and then we'll move on to the second one as well. Um, I'm just so grateful for this conversation. And I'll just say, while you're thinking of your questions, I think it's just really cool that Hartman and technology provide us for a real space to have a conversation about the issues that matter in Israel. And this is an issue that matters in Israel. So I'm really grateful for this conversation. Caitlin, do we have any takers? No takers yet, okay. So uh, Caitlin, play the second clip, please. we allow the status quo to be dominated by the settlement movement. Now, the problem here, and this is a problem with Micha's position, 
is that the strength of the concept is also its weakness in that it means many things to different people. Anyone can take this idea of, uh, of managing the conflict and turning it shrinking, into- Shrinking, sh shrinking. Oh, shrinking, not managing. Okay, shrinking the conflict and turning it into the policy direction that's most comfortable for them. So for example, Bennett, Prime Minister Bennett, is enthusiastically endorses uh, shrinking the conflict because he sees that as a mediation between uh, reducing the occupation and preventing a two-state solution. Now, I want a two-state solution. I don't believe it's possible now. So for me, shrinking the conflict is a way of trying to keep us on track toward a two-state solution. But what, for example, do we do as we're shrinking the conflict? Are we expanding settlements? That, for me, is the weakness in the plan. So, um, we done with the clip, Kevin? Great. So, by the way, I've, I've listened to this podcast a number of times, and I think you just heard the beating heart of this podcast, which was a Freudian slip. The Freudian slip, and, and now having heard this, this is my third or fourth time, I actually get that the entire lecture, the entire podcast, the entire class, the entire issue comes down to this Freudian slip, uh, where Yossi Klein Halevi wanted to talk about shrinking the conflict, but in referring to shrinking the conflict, he calls it managing the conflict. And then, of course, Daniel calls him out and says, no, 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 not managing the conflict, shrinking the conflict. Yeah, 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 shrinking the conflict. Uh, so I think that is actually the beating card of this whole conversation. Is shrinking the conflict just going to be preserving the status quo, mowing the lawn with, with better language? Um, so I'm going to take Richard Gray, your comment, please. Hi, I, I just really um, think that, you know, there's a whole world perspective and, you know, as usual, Jews are, are the canaries in the, in the mind for the whole world. And, and uh, I think there's a moral shrinking all, all over. Um, Anak, could you say more, Richard, when you say there's a moral shrinking and that somehow that's a canary in the coal mine, could you well, elaborate, please? I don't think I totally understand your point, Richard. Well, I think in, in the United States, we, we certainly have seen um, the, a, a com common morals disappearing and people getting uh, extreme morals, you could say, one way or the other. And, uh, you know, I think we, we've often had good democratic elected governments over, overthrown around the world. Um, you know, there is a, maybe we're just continuing, but it, it's, uh, it's harder to find places where there is a, a good moral uh, tone to, to, to the way people relate. So if I hear what you're saying, Richard, if I'm hearing you correctly, what you're really saying is that you're somewhat sympathetic to Danielle's concern that shrinking the conflict will become shrinking the moral concern about the conflict. It will be about power and power play as a way of preserving peace. And you're adding the gloss that, hey, isn't that what's happening in the world anyway? That power is trumping democracy. Uh, power is, uh, is, is the new name of the game. And that there's a lot of shrinkage of moral concerns. And that this is of a piece with that. Is that what you're saying? Yes. Yep. Okay. Yeah, so we have, and by the way, um, Yossi, who's such a deeply, deeply 
moral, wonderful, decent person. Um, his basic response, as you know, is that the moral voice, the moral angle that Daniel is so exercised by, he's just alone. Uh, that Israelis are not exercised by it. He's going to say, I don't think I, I necessarily put this in one of the clips. I forget, but you know, he wrote that book, Letter to My Palestinian Neighbors or Letter to My Arab Neighbors, which came out three years ago in English and it came out three years ago in Arabic. And it just came out now in Hebrew. And he says the reason it just came out was he was super reluctant to put it out for fear of being branded, you know, uh, so marginal and so peripheral in Israel. Like for, for an Israeli to be talking about how do I do dialogue with my Palestinian neighbors is just like so flowers and 60s and so not rooted to how real Israelis are living. They're just not connected to the moral issue. That's what he says is why his, his book just came out now. So uh, thank you for that, Richard. Sigalit Davis, you're up next. Thank you. Um... I think I wrote that I lose sleep every day, not only because of the moral issues behind it, but also because I truly worry about the place, the placement of the Jews in the world. Um, I always um, thought that Israel is the greatest invention in the world for us as Jews, and it's the best thing that ever happened to us as a nation. And after 30 years in America, for the first time, I had an epiphany that Really, Israel is a huge ghetto <clears throat> of all the refugee, all the Jews who were refugees from all over the world. And the world really didn't do us any favor. So now we're stuck with, uh, you Jews are stuck in the land of Israel and you need to figure out your problem with the Palestinians. And um, remember where you came from, all of you refugees and take care of the refugees that, the, that, that you, that really, we did not really create, the world really created for us. And the Palestinians themselves created for themselves in 1948 and in 1967, and in every opportunity to build the land instead of building it, um, demolishing it, and trying now to demolish us. And if we just look at the bombs that, if, if they were really to fall and, um, in, and, and bomb into Israel the last, um, in the last operation, Israel as it is today would not have existed. And, right. and it will take only one missile from Iran to, to blow the next 6 million Jews in the world because it is one huge ghetto surrounded by enemies. Right. And all Jews there, it's not like we're scattered around in small communities like we are in the United States. So I lose sleep over that. Does the world worry about that morality? Right. Yeah, thank you, uh, Sigalit, that's very real. What, what I hear you saying is, hey, the moral issue I'm worrying about and the moral issue that I'm losing sleep about is if Israel, all of Israel was turned into Sderot, if all Israel was turned into uh, a place that could be bombed as regularly as Sderot is bombed when we got out of Gaza, that's a moral issue and that causes me to lose sleep. Um, and I think that voice, that weary voice of yours and that worried voice of yours and that wary voice of yours, that is what, that's, that's what Danielle and, and uh, Yassi are acknowledging is, is the regnant voice in Israel, which is why Danielle says he's gonna be very lonely. 
he's going to be very lonely. And he says the heart minister is going to be very lonely. And he's going to create a lot of challenge for his institute because he's going to try to raise a moral concern where the people who he's trying to talk to, Israelis, are offering your moral concern, which is, hey, they're going to try to kill us. That's what I'm worrying about. Mm -hmm. um, so thank you, Sigalit. Uh, Melissa, uh, you're next. Yeah, um, I, ap I appreciate Donny Danielle Hartman's sentiment, uh, but I'm thinking that uh, right now what might help the Palestinians who are suffering um, is shrinking the political conflict that we want um, to actually do things that that change the situation and that almost talking about the moral conflict can come later, but what really helps, what might help, what I think helps the suffering more is not Israelis or Jews or American Jews struggling with their own morality, but doing real work to change things the way Micha Goodman is suggesting. And then, then we deal with our, how we're feeling morally, but I don't know that it helps the Palestinians if we're in a quandary, our quandary doesn't really help what's happening right. on the ground. Right, thank you, Melissa. Right, in other words, make, make life better for Palestinians. And I think that, that concern, Melissa, make life better for Palestinians, and then we can work through the moral angles after we've materially advanced their life. I think that runs into the concern that Yossi Klein Halevi mentioned in the second clip, which is, um, he doesn't use the word manna in heaven like the, the Torah, but that's how I heard it. You know, manna from heaven tastes like whatever you wanted it to taste like, right? If you wanted the manna to taste like a steak, it tasted like a steak. If you wanted it to taste like a wafer, it tasted like wafer, right? And, and Yossi Klein Halevi's critique of shrinking the conflict is that it, it sounds like, tastes like, is used like, whatever you want it to be used like. And that when Micha uses it, he's talking about you know, interlocking roads of Palestinian towns so that they can avoid checkpoints. He's talking about increasing their sovereignty. And somehow Naftali Bennett is speaking the language of shrinking the conflict while trying to expand settlements. What does that mean about the integrity of shrinking the conflict if they're trying to expand settlements while they're speaking that language? And will that materially advance things for Palestinians? So let's, um, what I wanna do is just listen to the next clip, which is, um, very deeply powerful. I'm not sure I agree with Danielle. I, I mean, I, I share a lot of your concerns, but I'll tell you one thing I love about Danielle. I love his passion. And his passion really shines through here in this third clip. So when I look at the shrinking the conflict, it's can we shrink it as a path to ending the occupation without putting the moral conversation on the table. This is what I'm frightened of. And if we can't, then you know, then you'll get Bennett. You point it to yourself. Do I feel the weight of the moral challenge, the weight of the moral problematics or not? Do I feel them? Now, if it's just, you know, is shrinking the conflict is a way for me to lower the political pressure on Israel, but we're okay. I don't have to worry about Israel because politically, militarily, we could sustain it and morally we're fine, then I'm okay. And then when you shrink it, you're not creating the moral engagement that we need to engage. And I wonder, what's the best way to get an idea across? Now, it could be that shrinking the conflict and only talking in practical terms 
is the best way to get the broadest consensus. But I don't know if that's going to cause us to really engage with some of the serious issues that we have to talk about. And then, as you said, shrinking the conflict, what you're going to do is going to be very different because the things that I want to shrink most significantly is not that I want to give them more roads. I want to shrink the places where Israelis have to occupy another people, where defense policies degrade another people, where in order to live where we live, we are undermining our sensibilities to human rights. Now, there is a moral challenge here. And I think the example that you gave of when we shrink it to expand settlements is a telling case. But isn't the fact that Bennett could use the category, doesn't that almost make the point of the critics of the shrinking of the conflict idea? And, and in many ways, the way they would do it is like, it's not a moral move. And you just want to, you want to get away with this for another 10, 15 years until we'll forget. And, you know, even Micha himself points to the fact that Micha says, I want to shrink the conflict so I could expand Palestinian sovereignty so that you could have 90% sovereignty. Bennett speaks about shrinking the conflict, enhancing their economic well-being, and he points to the discrepancy between him and Bennett on that. But isn't that proof that this category, maybe by itself, is morally problematic? Look, I'm with you in principle and not in practice. Uh, in practice, we have a situation where the strong majority of Israeli Jews have learned to live with the conflict, including the moral dimensions, because most of us believe that we really did try to make peace. And uh, if we put another offer on the table, we would get most likely the same results. Now, where I differ from that consensus is that I believe that that doesn't absolve us from the need to, as we've said in our discussions on this program in the past, you, you have to seek peace when it's possible, and you have to pursue peace when it's not possible. I believe it's not possible now. That's the time when you have to pursue peace. So in that sense, I'm very much part of our Hartman Institute consensus, but that places us outside the emotional consensus of a majority of Israelis. So what do we do in that situation, pragmatically? How do we start moving the Israeli public? And here, I would appeal to you as a teacher. What do you do when your students don't even share the same premise, don't even necessarily share the same language anymore? And so my starting point is, yes, I'm with you. I'm part of that consensus. I don't blame us for this freeze. I don't blame us for the status quo. I do blame us for moves that will undermine the status quo and undermine the possibility for a two-state solution. So how do you speak to the Israeli public? If you make moral appeals, who's going to listen to you? That language works for American Jews. It doesn't work for Israelis. And this is part of the problem. You see that. that. Could I stop you? You're right. But I want to, I, you know, I'm about to do something in the Institute. I'm going to be making my life really difficult and the life of the Institute really difficult because I feel that we can't afford to not raise the moral issues. I want to see, can I raise the moral issue while recognizing that peace now is impossible? Could I accept that I'm not to blame and still raise the moral issue? The question psychologically is, can I create a deep discomfort with the reality. For me, that's the shrinking that we have to do. What we have to do is we have to shrink the moral comfort with the occupation, not change. And here I buy your first part. 
And I don't know if I'm going to be able to, but Yossi, you know what I feel? When you said this line, really is a very sad line. You said, you could talk morality to North Americans, you can't talk of it to Israelis. If we digest that for a moment, Yossi, Houston, forget Houston, Jerusalem, forget Jerusalem, Judaism, we're in trouble. Zionism, we're in trouble. If the people who live in Israel, I can't have a moral conversation with them. We have to push this, Yossi. And the only way we're going to do it, I believe, is we're going to have to take real risks. I'm going to start taking those risks. And I'm going to try to find ways. Because no, the minute I start talking morality, everybody thinks I'm talking about a political solution. I don't want to. Mm. Thank you, Kevin. Can I just say, you know, Hashem, thank you for that dialogue. Uh, I think that dialogue between Yossi and Danielle is, is gold standard for the moral dialogue on Israel. And I think that's the dialogue that animates the tension between generations of Jews today, my generation, parents' generation, our children and grandchildren's generation, is all those kinds of ideas that were animating their dialogue are deeply felt and deeply convicted and we somehow can't get it out. And that's why there's a paralysis of conversation so often among generations of Jews. Uh, but thank you, Danielle and, and Yossi for that. I, I'm gonna pick up with the next comments, which are Louise Wolf, you're up. I have to admit I'm somewhat influenced by having just read um, this book by Dara Horn. Um, and I'm very struck um, that Danielle has a lot of company in Europe and the US if his first instinct is to um, lecture other Israelis about their moral failure because the book describes this enormously long-lived um, tendency to perceive Jews as inherently immoral. And um, I guess I disagree with his feeling that he's in a proper position to make that kind of assumption about his fellow Israelis instead of um, being more open to the idea, to question why it is that they're not going along with him. And that maybe it's not about a lack of morality, but a different perception of the um, entire situation. Louise, uh, thank you for that. By the way, if, if people didn't catch the book she showed, it's called People Love Dead Jews by Dara Horn. Uh, I actually just got it from Amazon. I'm, I'm, I'm flying out to Israel tomorrow and I'm reading that book on the plane to, to Tel Aviv. Um, People Love Dead Jews. I wanna just re react to one word that you said, Louise, because actually in our next clip, Danielle and, uh, and Yossi are gonna talk about it. The, and, and, and I wanna leave you with the question, Louise. I'm not making a point, I wanna leave you with the question. You use the L word, lecture, that he is lecturing about uh, you know, morality. And Danielle will say, he does not wanna lecture Israel about morality. He wants to teach Israel about morality. And Danielle is gonna draw the distinction between the prophets and the rabbis. And he's going to say the prophets, uh, this isn't the next clip, but it's just so responsive to what you said, Louise. 
he's going to say that the prophets were the biggest failures educationally in the history of the Jewish people because they got on a platform and lectured and, and nobody listens to them. Um, but rabbis taught morality. And here's my question to you, just marinate on it. Do you believe that that's a tenable distinction between lecturing on morality like a prophet and teaching morality like a rabbi? And if that's a tenable distinction, do you think there's a place for teaching morality in this conversation? Um, our next speaker is, um, is Esther. But Esther, please let us see your face. Thank you. Oh, sorry. Thank you, Esther. Thank you very much. I really appreciate you uh, letting me speak. I understand Yossi is an American. My understanding is, if I'm not mistaken, how on God's earth has he a moral issue with what all the Israelis that sit there and marinated in the problems? Why doesn't he look at what's going on here with the anti-Semitism in all their derogative reaction to all what's going on in here? I, I'm sorry, he might be a rabbi, he might be whatever, I don't know what he is, but my question is, if you don't know, if you don't live the people's life, do not put your two cents into it. And my, my other question is, where are the Arab, the Arab morality? That's my main question. Why doesn't they come to the table and sit and talk and, and try to resolve the problem? Thank you, Esther. Um, by the way, your comments, Louise's comments, uh, and we live here in North America, kind of underscore how hard Danielle and the Institute's life is going to be trying to take this position. I want to just react, um, Esther, to, to a few things that you said. Um, first of all, anti-Semitism is real. Uh, people who hate Jews and want to kill Jews, people who love dead Jews, Dara Horn's title, is real. But I think Danielle would say, uh, yeah, but that does not absolve Jews of the, of the obligation to live our own values. Um, and we want to be moral beings. And the fact that there's anti-Semitism is true, but we don't want to let that prevent us from being the people we want to be. We can't control what, uh, what haters do. We can control that we are strong. He's a big, Daniel's a big fan of Jewish power, of Jewish military might, but keep the Jewish, you know, not by force, not by might, but by the spirit of the Lord, you know, uh, uh, Zachariah's admonition, we have to also keep our values in place. The other thing, Esther, I would say, um, you know, is Daniel Hartman, you know, was in a tank and he has a whole story of how he barely survived and most of the people in his tank brigade uh, were incinerated to death in battle. And the fact that he was not was a miracle. His brother-in-law was killed in the Lebanon war in the 80s. So his family has paid the price and borne the burden. And what he's trying to do is create a conversation about Jewish values in the face of the complexities of that region that he is and his family are all too uh, familiar with. But, I, but I, I just wanna say also that the emotion and the affect of your voice, which I get and respect, 
totally as Louise and all the people, right? Uh, this is this is why this work is so hard, and this is why and this is why this kind of conversation is so hard to have and so rare, because it's it's so easy to speak with people who already agree with you in your own echo chamber, and it is so very hard to listen to and hear and be in dialogue with people who have a different point of view. I, I don't think anything you said is wrong, Esther, I, uh, except for I do, I do believe Danielle has the moral credibility to talk about this because he served and he's lost. Uh, uh, but I get how deeply emotional it is uh, and the reality uh, of, of anti-Semitism in, in their world. Um, I served in Yes, we're going to move on to, to Debbie There's first. Only our one, next... sen one sentence. Yes. I served in the military too. I know what it is. So Beautiful. Thank, thank you for your service, uh, Esther. Uh, Debbie first, you're, you're next. Debbie first. Okay, well, uh, Caitlin, we'll take who's the next speaker. We'll take one more and then we'll take the next clip. Uh, Stan Steinberg. Hello, everyone. Thank you. Um, you know, you can put out an olive branch and um, I understand the conflict between expanding and not expanding settlements, and that's not new. But how do you measure the amount of time and the signals that you get from the other side before you say this has worked or not worked? It, it's a question. I don't have an answer to this, but We've been, um, had, had all the way back through history had to fight for what we have in Israel and never have had true concessions from the other side. So I think this is a suitable solution for the moment, but I question how does it get measured? And when do you say this has worked or not worked? And I'm not sure there's an answer for this coming from this group. Um, it's right. probably going to be from leadership in Israel. Right. Uh, thank you, Stan. By the way, Micha is, uh, you'll get more publicity about this in a bit, but Micha is speaking um, on Zoom to our shul, to just Temple Manual on Sunday, November 14th or whatever that Sunday is. And and I know that when I, when I saw Micha this uh, uh, a few months ago in Israel, and I asked him how his Palestinian partners are at the um, shrinking the solution move. He said they hate the shrinking the solution move. Um, they're not partners in any explicit sense, um, but they do get that it actually makes their lives better. So without acceding to the fact that they're in a process, without saying that, without speaking the language of partnership, they'll reluctantly take, he hopes, he thinks, take moves like connecting roads and making their lives better and um, obviating checkpoints and, and minimizing encounters with, with Israeli army personnel. They'll take that because it makes their lives better. But to your point, there's not, there's not a spirit of we're building something together. So it's it is it's it's very fraught. Um, I want to take two more clips, and then we'll we'll. I've got a few more comments, and then we're going to look at some Jewish text. I know you can't lecture to anybody about morality. 
You can't, but you can teach morality. And I think Israeli society, Israeli educational institutions have to change some of their curriculum because I think for a long time now, we have stopped talking about the moral challenges and the moral consequences and the moral responsibilities that come with the occupation. You can't lecture, but if you're gonna be silent, I understand the methodology that you're picking. Um, I believe that the time for subtlety is over, but I have to find a way for subtlety not to be counterproductive. That I share with you. I'm not interested in being a prophet. The prophets were the biggest educational failure in Jewish history. I don't want to stand on the mountain and start talking about our moral, right. yeah, that doesn't work, I'm there. But there's a difference. The rabbis taught ethics, they did, they taught it. We have a huge challenge. And I'm, I'm about to explore significantly changing a lot of the Hartman Institute curriculum in many programs that we're running to put ethical discourse more at the center. But you're challenging me on how do you do that? And I, I don't know the answer. I just know that I have to do it. But could I ask you one question to conclude? Look, we... I think just one thing, Daniel, I think that we need multiple strategies. Fair enough. I, There's not going to be any one answer. I accept that too. Okay. Um, let me invite Steve Gelda to share your thoughts. So uh, first of all, uh, thank you. And I want to say that I appreciate all those who spoke, uh, I think probably for the majority of the people on the screen, from the perspective of um, uh, putting Israeli security over all else. And I want to say that it, that Israeli security keeps me up at night also, and I believe it also keeps the Neil Hartman up at night. But I do support Daniel's move and his moving the Institute in the direction of um, confronting the moral issues that um, uh, underpin the occupation. And I'm going to use that word occupation, even though I know people don't like it. And what I'm going to suggest is that my statement suggests that the moral death that results from occupying another people and in effect ghettoizing the Palestinians, if you've, you've all, many of you have visited Israel, if you've been fortunate enough to go on a Hartman tour of the West Bank, you can see uh, various ways that Palestinian people have been ghettoized. And then the comment of the temple member whose name I don't remember, who said that um, the Jewish people is in effect in a big ghetto in Israel. So we're ghettoizing ourselves and another people. And I think in the long run, we undermine our own position of Zionism and loving Israel and wanting Israel to survive by not acknowledging the moral um, uh, problems with, the, with um, occupying another people. So uh, to, short, to shorten this, uh, I'll just say that the moral, the moral issues have to underpin the political solution. Otherwise, we're, we're in a ghetto losing friends both amongst our own community, young witness, uh, young American Jews, and friends of liberal democracy around the world who view um, the occupation as undermining democratic uh, principles. I know that was long-winded, um, but I'll stop there. Thank you, Steve. So Steve, I wanna thank you for your, for your voice. This is such a rich conversation, so many points of light. 
I want to leave you with a question, and we'll, we'll take the next comment in a minute, which is going to be Alan Leifer. Here's some spiritual homework, I think, that comes from this podcast about shrinking the conflict. When you think about Israel, when you think about Israel, can you hold multitudes? Because I, I agree with every comment that every speaker made uh, it to, in this morning. That is to say, can you hold the fact that we really tried to make peace and we, we got the intifadas? Can you hold the fact that we got out of Gaza and we have a lot of bombs in Stay Road? Can you hold the fact that we don't want all Israel to be Stay Road? And can you hold the fact that uh, we are, pick your verb, I'll use the verb that Danielle and Yossi are using, occupying another people, and that that creates moral problematics, and that we can have a conversation about that and try to ameliorate their life, that's shrinking the conflict, um, without diminishing our security, making their life better, and is that a moral advance? And I think the question is, can, can, you, can the people who see security and self-preservation and people love dead Jews, can you see that, hold that, and also hold on to, hey, how can we do that and also ameliorate a moral conundrum? And the people who are all in favor of bettering Palestinians' lives, which is so worthy, can they see the reality and how it's lived and felt by Israelis of anti-Semitism, precarity, vulnerability, et cetera. Uh, and, and so if everyone can hold multitudes, then I think that's, that's an advance. Um, Alan Leifer, you're, you are our next speaker. Uh, thanks, Wes. Thanks, everybody. I, I, I listened to the whole thing. I found the, and I, and I, and I like the clips that you, uh, that you took, lot, took out. Um, often, you, you know, we hear that the, you know, the arc of moral justice is, you know, bending in the right way, and, and, but it takes a long time. Um, you know, here we are um, with a new approach, a new government, um, that uh, when we when I've listened to Micha talk about, you know, his proposal that he calls shrinking the conflict, uh, it is not only to you know ameliorate the current um, the current conditions uh, for the Palestinians, but it it is also to to uh, to have an outcome where both Palestinians and Israelis see that in fact. Um, a you know a a more uh, emancipated Palestinian people and even perhaps in their own state uh, you know could you know could work and 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 both sides the majority of both sides right now from polls and everything else say it can't work and so we're not, we shouldn't move you know we shouldn't move towards it so this uh, this idea that um, you know here we are new policy new governments new ways of uh, operating. Um, you know, we should we should test it out. That doesn't mean at the, that at the same time, in my mind, that at the same time, um, you know, inside Israel and inside the Jewish people, there should be an argument about uh, about uh, you know what are the ways to end the occupying of Palestinian lives that we continue to you know uh, uh, to do it. Um, so you know, I, I see morality, uh, increasing morality in 
in uh, incremental steps. It's not an all or nothing thing. Um, and you know, I I I hear uh, I hear Danielle's warning that says if all the government does is say we're shrinking the conflict, but at the same time doesn't you know doesn't actually set up um, the the conditions for a two-state solution um, so that Israelis and Palestinians will both be ready for it uh, in, a, in, year, in a few years down the road, uh, then, you know, then they're not, uh, uh, then not really implementing the program. So if I hear what you're saying, Alan, it is um, a mode of bridging these different voices of, of those who see the moral issue. Um, and there is a moral issue. And those who see anti-Semitism and vulnerability and the legitimacy and necessity of self-defense, and that's all real, is, is incrementalism. Um, and that um, one, one of the qualities of shrinking the conflict is uh, it's not a big moment on the White House lawn, but it's uh, small steps towards progress. And, um, and, and that I think is what Micha is gonna be talking to us about in a, in a few weeks. Um, one, quick, one, ask, one quick one quick yes. addendum is uh, when you talk about incrementals, it reminded me there's a new book out by Daniel Kurtzer, who, uh, who has, was a big Israeli-American you know, interlocutor with Israeli-Palestinian, and he talks about Kissinger, and, and, and Kissinger supposedly was successful because he's more incrementalist and pragmatic than, uh, than a lot of statesmen that were more, you know, moralist and all or nothing. So incrementalism has a, has a role as well. Yeah, absolutely. By the way, as a general policy matter, Hartman is very big into incrementalism. Um, that, that that's, a, that that's a, a reasoned and reasonable and basically effective way to make progress in, in small steps. Um, Debbie first, you're our next speaker. Hi, um, I come late to this table and I'm in interested because I know very little. So I'm really here to learn. And I think that the people who have spoke from this group have been very helpful to me because um, to me, I'm in the communications business and I find words really important. And the words of this topic are confusing and if, keep it simple. Um, and I understand this is really not for um, the world to agree on. This is for the, the Institute and a policy possibly coming out of it, which is helpful. But I appreciate the opportunity to hear all of this. Um, I do worry about anti-Semitism. I do think that we don't even know who in, in general, if you polled and said, who is the prime minister of Israel? I wonder what you'd find out. And though I understand this is an Israeli issue, this is a world issue. Everything is global today. And so I think the communication has to be, um, if, you, if we care about an Israel, we all have a stake in it. Thank you, Debbie. Thank you so much. Uh, Barbara Gaffin, your next speaker. Mute. Hi, I'm just getting, okay. Hi, uh, a, a few things. First, I just wanted to recommend the book, uh, A Paragon, 
um, which I think many of you would uh, learn learn a lot from. It's uh, it it talks it talks about mostly the organization parent circle, but it does it in a very compelling way with the voice of a, a Palestinian who lost a daughter um, because is because of uh, Israeli snipers and an Israeli Jew who lost a daughter because of uh, a terrorist attack on, on Ben Yehuda Street uh, in Jerusalem. So I just, there are a few things I wanna say. First, this notion of shrinking the conflict is just, it's an old concept with new language. Uh, many of you may remember confidence building measures. The term CBMs uh, was very, po very popular 20, 30 years ago. Uh, and I'm sure before that, there was another term for it. This, uh, this idea of you do things slowly and you try to build the confidence of the other side. Sadly, I personally, I think that from the Palestinian perspective and, um, and Wes, I think you reiterated this, that it's too little too late. Um, even though I think from a, a practical perspective, it would, it would sit best with, the, with Israeli Jews. It may not, it will not sit well with Palestinians. Um, their humiliation and their anger at this point of being occupied for so many years is, is so deep that um, I'm, I'm not sure that they're going to exactly jump up, you know, up and down with joy. But uh, given where the Israeli, uh, the Israeli head is now, um, I think that's probably the only thing that can work. I also want to give Danielle Hartman an enormous amount of credit. Uh, for saying things that are not popular. It's, it's certainly not popular among this group. And I'm sure it's not popular in Israel, but he's got a lot of guts for, for standing up uh, and, and saying what, uh, what he finds very troubling. Um, and you know, to, to Alan's point, the, the other issue is to talk about shrinking the conflict at the same time when there is Israeli, uh, when this settlement expansion is, <laughs> is like, how, how do you take it seriously? I, I think it's, um, you, you just can't have that conversation on, on one side and then expand settlements. I mean, there is just no hope for a two-state solution. Ultimately, Israel will have to, and I'm, I'm not saying I support this, but I think this is the reality that Israel has caused that it's gonna to have to be a one state solution. Israel will have to take over the West Bank and um, live with a very large number of, uh, and will have to give equal rights uh, to the Palestinians who live there. Mm. And Barbara, thank you. By the way, in that, we're running out of time for the last clip, but the last clip is exactly on your point. And we heard an echo of this in earlier dialogue with Danielle and Yossi, but how can you talk about shrinking the conflict and the reality of expanding settlements in the same time? And if the same government is using the language of shrinking the conflict while expanding settlements, doesn't that cast significant questions about the integrity of the concept of shrinking the conflict while they're doing it? So uh, I think that's, that's real. Um, I wanna just take um, a few last comments and then we're gonna wind up. And I wanna talk about what I think is just so important about it's rare, it's precious, and it's important about this, this conversation. Um, 
Julia Rashbastep, then Steve Bookbinder, and then we'll take Bernard Cotton, and then we're going to wind up. Um, well, I'll close. Julia. Okay, Julia is not on. So Steve Bookbinder, I'll take you. You're our next speaker. For holding this conversation today. Uh, we desperately need conversations like this within the Jewish community. And I am also very grateful to Danielle and Yossi and the whole Hartman Institute for putting these issues in front of us. Um, you talked about holding a multitude. Life is full of paradoxes. In fact, the issue is how do you manage the paradox? Last week, 3,200 you know, apartments were approved, as has been mentioned, effectively you know, basically making a two-state solution all the more difficult. What I think is really critical and what I try to do, and I hope everybody does, is go to Israel and visit settlements. In 2014, several of us visited settlements where we heard from the head of the settlers movement who said that the Palestinians are irrelevant. Three million, or you can argue 2.8 million people living among you are irrelevant. It cemented my belief that we always have to pursue a solution no matter what is happening. I agree with everything that's been said about position of Jews in the world, but we are the fourth most powerful armed forces in the world. We're an incredible booming economy. Um, there are opportunities. I wanna say one last thing about moral credibility. Wes, you, you mentioned this and I think it is true that Danielle has moral credibility because he was involved in wars, etc. But all of us have moral credibility. All of us have to engage in dialogue, whether that's in our temple or whether that's in visiting Israel. The one thing I'd also say about visiting Israel is that yes, the majority of Israelis basically are right now trying to put the conflict aside. They wanna live their life. That doesn't mean that when you actually talk to them in a sustained conversation, that you don't find their views to be more complex. And for those of us who have visited Israel and have friends, we also know that there are Israelis who support Daniel and Yassi Klein Halevi. They are not completely alone, although they may be in the minority. So I thank you for this conversation today. I urge everyone to go to Israel and visit a settlement because it will change your views. Visit us, you know, one of the startup settlements, established settlements, and ask those questions about morality. We all have a moral place in this world. Thank you, Steve. I, let me just say, uh, I love your suggestion. I want to take it super seriously. And I want to actually help all the folks on this call to implement what you just said, go to Israel. Those are the best words in the, in the world. And, you know, please God that the coronavirus situation should permit this. But right now, you know, as you know, we have not been able to do an in-person trip to Jerusalem for the last two summers, but they are having every intention of doing Hartman again in Jerusalem, in the Holy Land of Israel this June, it's, it's the end of June, you'll get home before July 4th. Um, and I would, and, and to Steve's point, when you go to Hartman, you're not just in a yeshiva, you're not just learning, there's plenty of learning, but you're also out in Israel and they have options where you could actually go to 
both Arab towns, Palestinian towns, Arab villages, Palestinian villages, and also settlements. And you actually have real conversations um, and there's nothing like being there to really immerse yourself in the reality of Israel. Uh, I'll be going this year uh, and I would urge everyone on this call to go to Israel, join us at Hartman in June of 22. And it's just uh, indescribably poignant and powerful to be there. Um, uh, I'm gonna call on Bernard Cotton for our last uh, speaker, and then I'll just wind up. Bernard. Well, first of all, the moral issue is important and it's something we have to bear in mind, but without a full peace settlement, I don't see how there's gonna be any movement on improving the moral situation. And unfortunately, that has to be on the back burner until that situation arises. With regard to shrinking the problem, forgetting about expanding the settlements being a conflict to the policy, but just the policy itself, if I'm an Arab extremist, and I'm sure the extremists are going to do their best to, re, to derail the whole process, I'd love to have access roads without having to go through checkpoints, and I would exploit it as much as possible. So there's going to be a lot of trouble in stopping extremists from derailing the program. And then finally, let's say it all works. How are you going to create one cohesive Palestinian territory, having little pieces connected by roads, maybe a short-term policy, but long-term, that's not going to be acceptable. Thank you, Bernard. Uh, just let me respond to that and also something that Barbara mentioned earlier about confidence building measures. Um, I think this is different from confidence building measures and also Bernard to respond to your point. I think confidence building measures was we're going to try to build some momentum, confidence building measures. The building was the part of confidence building measures that was important because we're building towards something, we're building towards peace, we're building towards a two-state solution. Um, in contrast, uh, shrinking the conflict assumes no momentum towards building anything other than a better life, better than yesterday, better than the status quo for the Palestinians. And in that way, advancing Israel's moral credibility. Um, and therefore, Bernard, to your point is, how, does, how do a bunch of Palestinian cities, towns, villages connected by roads, how does that equal the state of Palestine? It doesn't. Um, as you know from the lecture, it's 80% it's sovereignty, it's 90% sovereignty. That's with Micha's you know, read, not Prime Minister Bennett's read. Um, so it's not about a Palestinian state, it's about better life for the Palestinians in those towns. Um, and it's not about building towards the momentum of a peace deal, but it, a better life, better than yesterday. Um, that's where we're at. I wanna just step back, zoom out for a second. I wanna name what I find very powerful, beautiful, rare, and very helpful about this conversation and then talk about where we go from here. Um, I'm not aware of other spaces where you could talk about people love dead Jews, or you could talk about Horn, or you could talk about anti-Semitism, and then also talk about moral aspiration and moral concern of the occupation at the same time. 
the people who talk about uh, people love the Jews don't use the word occupation. Uh, the people who are very alive to the more problematics of the occupation uh, tend not to be as focused in that conversation about people love dead Jews. What's very rare about this conversation is that all of these voices are part of it. And I wanna just mention uh, two benefits other than the fact that it's actually true and we're real, so we're having a credible conversation. I think there's two benefits of this conversation. Number one, it heals a generational divide. Um, if you talk to your children and grandchildren, I, I can't tell you how many people I've talked to who, who have children and grandchildren who are so different from them on Israel. I know Shira and I are blessed with three children who are so different from us on Israel. Uh, I shared this in our sisterhood class when we were talking about the Netanyahu's, but when the war happened in May, our family thread became very toxic for me because three people named my children were writing stuff I could not stand reading. And we, we just agreed, these are our kids, Shira and me, our kids. We're writing stuff we couldn't stand reading it. And we said, stop sending this stuff on our family thread. And what we'll do is we'll talk about it. You know, I turned 60 over the summer. My kids came in. We all saw each other for the first time in Corona to spend my season. And we said, we're gonna talk about Israel and have a thoughtful, caring conversation in person where all your voices, our voices could all come together. And when we all came together, we all agreed, nah, it's too hard, it's too unpleasant. We can't do this, it's too hot to handle. So I wanna just say that the Hartman conversation we just had, role models, um, an ability to be able to contain multitudes that are all painful and challenging and all true, that I couldn't do in my own family. And I know my family's not alone. And so one thing about this is I think it gives us a way forward for healing a generational divide. The other thing that's just beautiful and you see it in real time here, just to name it's obvious, is it's a space where people forget the next generation, but even you know, horizontal, people on this call, on this screen, who's, who have different preoccupations, uh, who have different lenses, can be in a respectful dialogue. That's, that's just so important. So here's where this, could lead. I um, also want to name that we're in coronavirus land. Uh, we're, we're still dealing with the pandemic and there's still a lot of reluctance about coming together. I'm, I'm here with Caitlin and the Rabbi Chill Sanctuary. Um, on a typical Shabbos, there's not many people here. On a typical Shabbos, there's very few people here. On a typical Shabbos, there's a lot of concern about coming. There's a lot of dislike of masks and who can blame anyone for not wanting to wear a mask for several hours. So we need to improvise as a community. How are we gonna to come together during the pendency of this pandemic as it continues? And so we began this project called TE Connects where we're trying to help. And I've got Bob Kahn and Wendy Landon, our lay chairs of this. I got Terry Swartz-Russell, my colleague, head of education at the synagogue. And we're trying to put groups of eight, 10, 12 people together. And you could meet online in a smaller group or you could meet in person in a backyard, whatever you're most comfortable with, uh, where we can continue this conversation. And Hashem has gifted us with an endless supply of Hartman podcasts that do on other questions what we just saw role modeled here. Uh, the next one that came out uh, is about, think, how do we think about Israel attacking Iran's nuclear 
uh, capability? Um, and and what, what are the Jewish values uh, and the Jewish lenses implicit in that conversation? Um, and so what, what we wanna do is like what success would look like here is that everyone on this call, more than 80 people on this call, be signed up for a small group, a TE Connects group, where we will get you these podcasts and where you can have with 10, 12 people, the same kind of dialogue that we just had. So with that, let me just call on either Bob or Wendy or Terry to just say a word about that. And how do you do it? If you're open to doing it, what do you do and how do we make that happen? Hi, it's Wendy. Um, so basically we already have um, over 10 groups, um, about 110 to 130 people. There are seven groups that meet on other subjects. I think Hartman is a great, it, there's a wealth of information. So just email Terry Swartz Russell um, and here it is. Um, and she will take names of people and divide people up. People can meet, each group can decide how often they wanna meet, whether it's monthly, every six weeks, after a Hartman event. And you'll just discuss with your group um, whatever it is that you wanted, if you want to discuss the podcast or whatever session with Mika in a couple of weeks, you can discuss it with your groups. Um, another thing is Talmud class. I used to go in person. Now I watch it online. And that's another thing. Some members have got get together by Zoom or in person to discuss the Shabbat morning Talmud classes. So if that's something you'd love to ruminate and have further discussions over again, email Terry and she will take names of people who want to discuss the Talmud Shabbat morning sessions and you can meet with your groups. Wendy, thank you. So let, here's the closing word. Um, do it for me, do it for you and do it for us. I would love to invite everyone who's on this call to, if you're, if you're in a TE Connects group, keep connecting with your group. If you're not in a TE Connects group, please email Terry and get in a group because we just, we are, this is the year 71, right? The temple was destroyed in the year 70 and Jews back in 71 had to figure out what now. I'm just telling you, this COVID thing is like a meteor that flattened our world. And the way we used to get together, we're not getting together that way. I don't know whether we'll ever come back. There's no prophets or prognosticators, but I can tell you it's not happening today. It's not happening anytime soon. And in the meantime, we need to innovate and recreate how we get together. And so uh, until we come up with a better idea, this is about as good as we got, form a small group and we're gonna give you content, Jewish ideas, Jewish ideals, Jewish sources, stuff that really matters. Please, for yourself, for our shul, join a TE Connects group and keep the community and keep the conversation going. Boca Tov, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you.